Greetings and welcome to the pod. My name is Mark West, and do you reckon you can swim around wave-powered devices like you can run around wind farms? I didn't know, so I asked Dr. Mark Hemmer, a principal research scientist leading the Sea Level Waves and Coastal Extremes team within CSIRO's Ocean and Atmospheric Climate Science Centre. Mark has conducted research into offshore renewable energy for over 10 years, exploring the potential of Australia's renewable offshore energy resources. But before I asked him whether we could swim around these things, I asked him, what exactly is wave and tidal power? Yeah, so there's a number of different offshore renewable energy uh, technologies, which is how we kind of group them together. So there's there's the wave and tidal energy that you spoke about. Um, there's offshore wind, there's offshore solar, there's ocean thermal energy, there's um, salinity gradient. So there's a whole number of different technologies there. Um, some are more mature than others. Obviously, offshore wind, when you look at particularly Europe, but also rapidly growing in China, um, they are, uh, you know, that's a... a almost commercial technology or commercial in some respects, um, but a lot of the other technologies are, are very much emerging and trying to fight for their space in the future energy landscape, I guess. Okay. And so, and so what is wave power? How does it work? It's not just waves crashing on the beach. There's, there's a bit more to it than that. Um, so there's a lot of different technologies uh, out there for how you harvest wave energy. Harvest wave energy. Um, so if you look back at cars 100 years ago, cars had all sorts of weird and wonderful shapes. Um, and wave power is somewhat of the same state now that uh, people harvest wave energy through um, point absorber type things where, you know, a classic example is a, a buoy um, and the oscillatory motion of the buoy um, is used to um, pull on a, a piston type thing and that is converted to mechanical energy and then electrical energy. Um, other technologies act like a blowhole so they set up an air chamber over the top of the waves and as the waves go up and down within that air chamber they force air through a turbine um, to provide electrical energy. Uh, there's other technologies that have been tried in terms of long surface um, kind of snakes that uh, have hinge points that harvest, harvest the mechanical energy into electrical. Um, so there's, yeah, like I say, there's a, there's a whole range of different technologies out there. There's hundreds of different patents. There's uh, um, hundreds of companies around the world trying to, uh, like I say, find their place in in uh, the energy landscape to to push their te- technologies okay. forward. And so, what? How how big do your waves need to be? Are they comparable to the waves you see at Bondi, or are they? Do they need to be much much higher to to work to generate energy? Yeah, no, not necessarily uh, large. So. There's, I mean, there's a range of different um, thoughts out there in, in this respect. So um, I guess early thinking was that you need to harvest the large waves and there, you know, that's where all the energy is. That's going to be great. But, you know, with large waves also comes large loads on structures, um, which makes it a really challenging environment to work in. Um, so now you are tending to see uh, technology developers aiming for that kind of medium uh, range wave climate, so similar what you see off the east coast of Australia. Um, particularly in Europe, you're starting to see different companies aiming at even smaller wave climates than, than that. But I, I guess the east coast of Australia is kind of the, the range of wave climate that is kind of the sweet spot where it's, it's consistent good wave energy, but it doesn't have the, the enormous loads um, too often to, to deal with that. So it's, it's kind of 
finding that sweet spot in terms of ratio, in terms of high, having high uh, wave power, consistent wave power, but not having too large and extremes that you have to engineer systems for. And how does that differ from tidal power? Yeah, so tidal power is um, really quite different again. So tides, as you know, they rise and fall twice a day, typically. Every now, every now and then you find spots where it only happens once a day. Um, and there's, yeah, yeah, Perth only yeah. has one tide a day. I had no idea. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and there's, there's um, other, yeah, several other spots around the world. But, um, yeah, so there's two tidal technologies. So, you know, a tidal technology that's been around for decades now, and there's a major tidal power station in France that operates as a barrow system. So there the, the tide comes into, say, an estuary. They've built a barrow, so the, the estuary floods, and then they hold that back like a, a dam, and it drains out through turbines um, and, you know, acts like a hydro dam effectively. So there's been uh, projects like that proposed for the Kimberley probably for the last 30 years, but they've never got up, and I'd, I'd be surprised if they do. They have quite large environmental uh, impacts associated with uh, how they um, change the flooding of, of tidal estuaries. But the technology that's kind of um, been pushed in the last decade or so is tidal stream energy, and so they, um, as the tides go up and down um, twice a day, they, they force a, a tidal current, a tidal stream, uh, particularly in kind of restricted passageways, and that current drives a turbine underwater. So those tidal turbines look something like a, a wind turbine, but obviously under the water. So I would have thought the, the, the passage of the moon around the Earth was pretty predictable. So oh, this would be pretty good uh, base load power, wouldn't it? I mean, there's a lot of ocean and predictable tides. What, what's stopping this being our fundamental power source? Yeah, so you're right. So one of the big advantages for tidal energy is its predictability and knowing when your power will come in. Um, in terms of the comment about baseload, like I say, it, the tide goes up and down twice a day. Um, and so when your tide is at a peak or at a, at a trough, um, there's no tidal current. And so there are, you know, while it's predictable, there are these periods where there's no power being returned. So there's ways to deal with that and being so predictable, you know how much storage you need to, to fill those gaps and such like. So that's, you know, that's a a strong advantage in the title. What's, uh, what's holding it back, I guess, is what holds back all these offshore technologies and that's operating in the marine environments. You know, it's much more difficult than operating on land. So the, the cost the cost of electricity that's delivered is ultimately uh, higher than what we're seeing from the, um, the land-based renewable technologies. That's, that's interesting. So it's expensive, but we do lots of offshore drilling and that's, um, you know, for energy. That's that presumably cost. Is that just cheaper because we're good at it and it's a mature technology? Yeah, I think that's that's part of it. Um, it's it's it's, uh, it's cheap. There's large amounts of it. It's, it's uh, an energy dense medium that's uh, pumped out of the ground. It's you know effectively it's quite a simple process in terms of uh, you know relatively speaking, um, drilling a hole and, and sucking the oil out and, okay. and delivering it. It's, Probably a little bit too simplistic, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and and what are what are some of the other downsides? Are are the turbines killing fish and dolphins, or is it relatively safe? Yeah, so there's lots. There's been lots of work over the last ten years. So one of my roles is as an Australian delegate into an international group that looks at the environmental effects of these offshore technologies. Um, and so you know, obviously, these less mature technologies like wave and tidal. Um, there's few sites around the world where they're actually deployed where you can measure these things effectively. But, you know, there hasn't really been any severe effects from these 
some of these devices. There's been lots of work looking at um, how fish and marine mammals um, behave when they're around uh, submerged tidal turbines. You know, there's been lots of concern about uh, tidal turbines um, slicing up fish and such like. So there's been a big campaign in the Bay of Fundy in Canada where um, there has been tidal energy deployments. The, the local fisheries, both commercial and recreational fisheries, have been quite against tidal energy in terms of destroying their fishing industry. Um, but really, I guess, where we're at at the moment in terms of the, the little bit of information that we do have, the, the evidence kind of points otherwise. Okay. So obviously, as, we, as these things are developed, I guess it's doing it in bits and just kind of gradually increase, increasing deployment as opposed to you know putting a lot in and having severe impacts from Okay. And I was reading um, something that you wrote saying that I think it was wave power. There's enough wave power around Australia to basically power Australia a few times over. Is 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 that right? Do you see do you see this really escalating in the future? Um, certainly there's I mean, we talk about being resource limited or not, so there's enough wave power to meet Australia's needs, certainly. Um but I guess it's all relative. If you compare the size of the wave power resource to our solar resource, it's it's minimal, it's trivial. Right, um, okay. And so, you know, that's a, a worthwhile comparison to make. Um, but, you know, there's advantages to, to wave energy. I spoke about some of the advantages of tidal energy, wave energy similarly. Um, while it's also variable, it's not as variable as, as wind or solar, but it typically varies out of phase. So, for example, when you've got lulls um, in, in wind or or solar and you know you're quite likely to not have a lull in wave and so they can even things out if they're deployed together. There's some cool um, running races around wind farms in uh, near Canberra. I was wondering if there could be some decent swimming races around tidal farms or wave power farms but I'm guessing the turbines probably <laughs> might might make that not so uh, safe. Yeah I think it's um, you know that's one thing that the community's looked at a lot is in terms of it's obviously uh, at the moment any technologies have an exclusion area around them um, and I guess that's you know as we see our marine domains being um, increasingly used by different sectors there's this uh, competition for space um, and how you effectively plan for that um, so, you know, recreation's got a leg in there, um, fisheries has a leg in there, navigation, all sorts of things have have a, have a role to play in, in dealing with a, what is public domain, essentially, and, and how those different sectors um, get a role in in the use of that space is is, um, is an interesting, uh, interesting aspect challenge to work through. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And another arm of your work is, I mean, you, you, you're a, you're the expert on waves. I think I heard you on ABC Kids podcast. You're a, you're you're Mr. or Doctor Waves. Um, <laughs> so uh, one of the, the another aspect of your work is looking at uh, the effect of climate change on on waves and coastal areas and the erosion and whatnot. What what effect will climate change have on waves around Australia? Yeah, so that's um, yeah. My other hat is really looking at uh, coastal hazards and uh, in the context of climate. Um, variability and change. So um, I guess where I come at that is uh, there's been a lot of um, public discussion around sea level rise and such like and the effects that'll have um, and a lot of those um, discussions are talking about um, sea level rise under the assumption that the, the wave climate's going to be to stay the same. Um, but you know we can't talk about changing um, rainfall patterns and such like and the changing intensity or frequency or 
paths of storms without recognising that's also going to have an effect on on where our waves are generated and, and the directions and magnitude that they that they travel. Okay. Um, so you know, there's various things over the historical um, 30 years or so, or, or perhaps longer. We've seen um, quite a strengthening in the Southern Ocean um, waves. Um, you know, part of that's attributable to ozone effects, um, but also um, carbon signaling in that also. Um, and so those Southern Ocean waves are, are seen in the uh, the observational satellite record. Ozone um, effects. What, that's interesting. Yeah. I heard so. That. Yeah, so the, uh, the depletion of the ozone hole has led to um, pattern of storms um, strengthening um, and intensifying further south. Um, has been a, a ongoing trend over the last 30 years. So the recovery of the ozones tend, tended to reduce that um, that signal, but we expect it. Uh, you know, it's, it's still likely it's a it's a balance between how much the ozone hole recovers versus how strong the, the carbon signal becomes. Right. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, so the Southern Ocean is a very large signal that we've seen historically and we expect to see um, in the future. Um, and then there's other effects as well in terms of um, strengthening trade winds, um, effects on the waves through the tropics. Um, and these have uh, effects on the direction that waves propagate in terms of the annual mean type um, wave direction that has net effects on shoreline position and a whole range of things. In depends on, you know, it's a lot more regionally variable than uh, the effects you see from sea level rise, for example, so it's, it's much more challenging to bring that down to, to local scales. That's that's interesting, because so, I think immediately when you think of climate change, you might think of the sea level rise, but I hadn't really thought through the idea that the winds will change, which will then change that ocean-wind uh, interaction, which has effects on, on waves, and the waves then batter the shoreline. Yeah, that's, that's basically it, yep. And what are, what do you think the implications are for? I guess it's very difficult, as you say, it's difficult to model at that sort of small level. But what do you think the implications could be around around Australia? Yeah, so I mean, a nice example to point to is the, the twenty sixteen storm in in Coleroy. Um, so that wasn't necessarily a very large storm when you look at just its magnitude. Um, you know, I think in terms of wave height, it came in as about a one in twenty year event. But what was uh, particular about the, that storm was the direction it came from um, being unusual for for the, uh, the general orientation of that coastline. So that orientation of that coastline um, essentially evolves to some equilibrium with the wave climate. And so if that, uh, if that wave climate changes, then that equilibrium, if you like, of the shoreline position um, will respond to that changing wave climate. So you can see you know, it might be retreat of the, the shoreline, but quite equally it might be um, recovery of the shoreline or advance of the shoreline in different places. So, it, like I say, it comes down to very local, localised um, scale effects in terms of how that will play out. That's interesting. So I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that either. So the direction of the the wind, basically, that it's going to change. Yeah, that's and right. Change yep. the coast, literally change the shape of a coastline. Yeah, yep. That's kind of got a lot of issues for city planning, yeah, and doesn't I'm, it? Yeah, obviously that's on, on soft coasts, so on sandy coasts, that's where that'll happen. Obviously on a, on a rocky coast or, a, or an engineered coast, that, that's not a, not a process you need to worry about. Yeah. yeah, right, okay. And I imagine in some of the lower-lying areas around, I guess the north of Australia is a bit lower, isn't it? I'm not sure, <laughs> but, but yeah. uh, that's going to have... Uh, that's going to have a lot of issues, a lot of uh, implications changing the coastline. Yeah, potentially. Um, I mean, that, that's that's one process that 
plays out. Um, you know, there's there's many other coastal processes that that also play out. So how you how you bring these processes all together and, and look at uh, the effects together is the is the real challenge, I think. Yeah. And so just just finally, where's your research heading now? What are the, the new developments or that you think coming up? Yeah, so I mean one thing that's quite exciting in the uh, in the context of offshore renewable energy is recently there's been an announcement of a Blue Economy Cooperative Research Centre. And so this is interesting. I mean the the narrative behind that Blue Economy Cooperative Research Centre is really about um, aquaculture industry and allowing that to move offshore so it can expand and, and become a larger industry than what it's capable of in its nearshore waterways. So when an industry like that needs to move offshore and effectively sever its ties to land, which is where it gets its power and fresh water and stuff like from, then it introduces a number of challenges. So how will they get their power when they're operating offshore? And so that kind of introduces power demands offshore and so that's a potential market for some of these offshore technologies. So that's you know, it's a significant program that's going to go on for the next uh, 10 years. Um, it's got some really interesting aspects to that. Like I say, it's um, lots of good science around the aquaculture aspects, around the offshore engineering component of, of building these platforms that can deal with offshore uh, environmental loads. There's the energy component to that, and then there's the environmental and social considerations associated with, with doing that as well. So there's some really interesting things I suspect will come from that program. Um, so that's what I'm excited about at the moment. Okay, that's a fascinating idea. That So it's aquaculture, so I guess fishing is a big part of that, but what else do they do? <laughs> what else do we need to take offshore? Yeah, well, that's... Um, so you know, my interest, my predominant interest in that is from the energy perspective, and so the way I've been pushing it is there's a lot of industries that have an energy demand offshore that don't necessarily want to be connected to shore. Um, and so, at the moment, the, that in, those energy demands are predominantly met by diesel, which is probably the worst fuel we can be using for um, for a range of reasons, for expense and emissions. And so, what I'm interested in is, you know, how can we meet the demands of those offshore technologies um, more sustainably um, with low emission technologies? And so, that may be roles for the wave, wave or tidal and offshore wind technologies. Um, but there's also interesting. Um, roles there for different storage technologies, whether that be battery or whether it has place for hydrogen. Uh, right. When we talk about, you know, this is one of the nice things about aquaculture in that you start talking about the co-benefits of different technologies. So aquaculture has a um, strong demand for fresh water for various reasons um, and, and also oxygen. So they're producing their oxygen through electrolysis. Um, so hydrogen in some respects is a byproduct of their activity anyway. And so if you're producing hydrogen, then you can then you know, use that as storage to, to even out your energy loads from some of these variable uh, energy technologies. That's pretty cool. So there's not yeah. energy. And then depending on your, your scale, and potentially you've got a hydrogen supply that you can use to, to fuel ships that might service a thing, and it depends on you know, how big you want to go, really. Yeah, yeah I, don't know, I don't know how these things scale, but uh, like I can imagine uh, naively that sort of a local tidal plant with some form of storage would 
I mean, that, that seems to make a lot of sense. So uh, making them small, I, I, I don't know if that's expensive. I don't know what economies of scale there are when you, when you scale these things up, but that does make a lot of sense. Yeah, so I mean, Thailand, you talk about um, scale in terms of tidal energy, so it's, it's really interesting. So in terms of um, many different technology developers aiming at different components of the market, so some, some developers are aiming at, you know, just trying to go as big as you can, so following the path of, of wind turbines effectively. Um, but there is constraint there in terms of generally the water depth that these things uh, operate in is are constrained, and so they can only go so big. Other other technolo- technology developers aiming at small scale and what they call kind of parasitic deployments, where they'll deploy smaller turbines on things like bridges and such like, where you get these much lower flows, um, but is a is a predictable and, and reliable energy source that you can. Um, you can harvest as well. So there's this complete different range of scales that people are aiming at. Well, that's it for this edition of The Pod. Thank you very much to Dr Mark Hemmer from CSIRO for taking the time to chat about offshore renewable energy. If you'd like any more information on anything you've heard today, get over to the website at www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net. My name is Mark West. I will catch you next time on The Pod.